There's always a lot of things happening in the church body when we come together. Some come rejoicing, some come weeping, some there's always different things happening. The same is true here for Redeemer, definitely. As we come uh, this morning, we want to uh, remember the Chittics, um, especially Julie, as they uh, laid her mother to rest this past week in Arlington. Um, and so I believe they're still down there in the D.C. area, but we remember them and just um, all the, the trials that they've walked through really in the last year and a half. And so we, we lift them up before the Lord. Um, at the same time, we say goodbye to uh, a few people this morning, so we'll cover that in just a second. Um, it's good to see the St. Lawrence's and Kelly back, old members who are back visiting uh, with us this morning. And then we rejoice with the Beakleys as we think of uh, their adoption and a party coming up to celebrate those little lives. So there's just always a lot of things happening, moving, changing the church. We thank the Lord that our faith is built on Jesus Christ, who is unchanging, that our hope is founded in him. <clears throat> we do invite everyone to stay for a little bit afterwards for a farewell lunch. So we'll say just a word about that now. We want to uh, honor those families that have been with us, that have been part of the Redeemer body here for a while. We uh, say goodbye to Steve and to Evelyn. Steve's been part of the Redeemer body on and off and, and with his uh, classwork. He's traveled some for uh, a lot of years, helped us get uh, Group 1-2 started, some things like that, and has served faithfully. Evelyn, we've got to know over the last years, the Lord brought them together, and so we thank the Lord for them. They'll be moving to Boston um, towards the end of the summer. You might see them around a little bit again, but this will be our official farewell uh, to them. So we thank uh, the Lord for them. David and Harriet, are they in? There they are. They came in late, so I mean, it's, come on, right? Like, <laughs> I couldn't even say anything at the beginning of the service. I was looking for everybody. Um, no, they, they haven't been uh, with us for a real long time, but I really appreciate people who, even when they know you know, probably not a permanent stay, who jump right in and get involved in many ways. And so uh, they've been very faithful here, faithful investing in the lives of others, uh, serving the children's ministry, making coffee for us in the morning. And so we, we will miss you guys. We wish the best to you as they head on to Purdue um, and uh, what God has in front of them. We love them, appreciate them. And then finally, uh, Michael and Nat. I can, I'm not seeing anyone. Oh, there they are. Uh, Michael and Nat as... Uh, we say goodbye to them. Nat has been a Redeemer for a long time. I was thinking this morning, she uh, was one of our, the first membership classes. Natalie was the, the first person who I baptized in, in ministry, so that's always a, a special thing for me. Um, and, you know, she's been faithful in so many uh, areas uh, of the ministry here, serving. And then Michael, he's been here for quite a while as well, so we'll miss him, we'll miss his trumpet, we'll miss... Uh, just the way they serve, he's provided some leadership for us in Group 1, too. And so just families who we love, they'll be moving on to Boston as well uh, as Michael starts at MIT. And so you know, we're thankful what the Lord's done in their lives. Um, we are, you know, sad to see them go. I think some of us are mad to see them go. But for the most part, we rejoice with them. We're thankful what the Lord has done in their lives. Um, and so we will say farewell, honor them, uh, sharing lunch together in a little bit. <clears throat> So Genesis chapter 9 is where we will be. As I was studying, I, I, I was wondering if Moses, as, as he wrote this, knew that in a few thousand years he was really setting preachers up to tiptoe through some offensive topics. I mean, we come to, to Genesis 9 and it's, okay, first I'm going to hit you with all you married couples, you ought to be having babies. Secondly, all you vegetarians, you ought to be eating meat. 
and then all you bleeding heart liberals, you ought to be voting for the capital punishment. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to offend you with this morning. So we will, we will do that as best as, as we can. Um, just knock them off, one, one two, three. While there are issues to think through, and there are is current uh, topics that grow out of this, I don't want us to, to miss, to immediately stick it into some weird argument today. I, I, I do want us to look at what is taking place in Genesis 9 and the provisions that God is making here um, for his creation in Genesis 9. So I, uh, Adam read for us back in chapter 8. Pastor Adam covered it last week. But in chapter 8, verses 20 through 21, you have the, the covenant that God is making with Noah laid out in, in its basis. It, its foundation is given. And so in its foundation, uh, here is what it is, the end of verse 21 and 22. He says, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So you have this underlying covenant made here in Genesis 8. The Genesis 9 is then going to continue to develop and give some provisions and prohibitions and, and a, a little bit more context to this covenant. But in Genesis 8, you have sort of its foundation laid out here. And it's this promise that this flood, this post, this flood that came, God is making a promise, looking now that I'm not going to, in this sort of uh, catastrophic global way, bring sweeping judgment again. From here on out, what plays out in redemptive history will happen in this arena, upon this foundation. Never again will I bring this sweeping judgment. And so as we come to Genesis 9, we have a bit of a recreation, a, a new, a second creation story in a sense. But it's on this context that never again will this sort of judgment come until the final day of the Lord when all that is passing away will finally be put away. But there's also a second thing in Genesis 8 that's going to set the context for us in Genesis 9. If you back up to verse uh, 21, it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Pastor Adam spent some time on this last week. And what it lays out for us is that the flood, while it was judgment on the wickedness and evil of the world, it did not get rid of the wickedness and the evil in the world. When we come back from the flood, all that happened because of the fall is still here. The evilness, the inten evil intentions of man's heart remains. We'll look at the end of, when we get to the end of Genesis 9 and begin to see this already playing out in Noah, in his life, and in his son's lives. And you see th that evil still remains in the heart of man. And so if Genesis 9 is kind of, as many authors talk about, creation, the flood is a bit of decreation. Genesis 9 is recreation. It is now a lot of continuity, but there's also discontinuity because he's speaking into, okay, in this context now, my redemptive history will carry out, but it's going to carry out in a world full of sin, a world full of evil. And so we keep these two things in mind that this is our context coming into the covenant of Genesis 9, is this underlying promise from God with also the reality that the fallenness exists in this world. Let's look a little bit at just the continuity and discontinuity um, as we set this up. The continuity of Genesis, uh, this sort of recreation post-flood world with the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. 
If you remember Genesis uh, 1, as it begins, in the beginning God created, and then in verse 2 it talks about, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. In Genesis 8, as we come to the flood subsiding, look how it begins here, but God remembered Noah, chapter 8, verse 1, and all the beasts and the livestock that were in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. And so you have this imagery of the wind now upon the face of the waters. And you have it in Genesis 1, the Spirit of the Lord upon the face of the waters. And then you see in Genesis 1, in verses, verse 8 and 9 then, that out of the water God brings forth land. He brings forth land out of the water. And then you see that again here as the flood subsides and God moves over the face of the water, out emerges the land. And then in Genesis 1, God sends forth all the living creatures and the livestock and the winged birds and, and everything, that the beasts of the field, and he sends them out to inhabit the land. And you see the same thing happening here in chapter 8 as a flood subsides and God, God calls them out from the ark. You see the beasts of the field and the, the creeping things and everything start to re-inhabit the earth. And so you see this sort of recreation. And then as you look at Genesis 9 and you come to the first sort of commission that he is going to give this new creation, in verse 1 and verse 7, it surrounds it just like in the original creation story. It said, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse 7, You be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So it's this command then to, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have, to have children, to fill the earth. And it is just like Genesis 1, that command, that commission is rooted around the image of God. In Genesis 1, it's the image, fill the earth with his glory. Uh, spread this image of God abroad through the earth. In Genesis 9, we see the exact same thing come up, that man is made in God's image. We see that in verse 6. And so this commission to be fruitful and to multiply is to, to take the image of God, the glory of God, and to spread it abroad. Spread the worship of God abroad through the image of God, through procreation, through being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and teeming with life. And so you have this initial mandate of creation, of being fruitful and multiplying. You now have it made to Noah once again and to his wife and to his sons and his sons' wives of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Just a couple of thoughts. We're, we're going to look mainly today at three provisions that the Lord gives <clears throat> to this kind of recreation and the promise, and yet now it is within a fallen world, and so there's certain provisions given. But just a couple thoughts. One is the blessing of children. We've hit it before, but the blessing of children specifically in a fallen age. I think sometimes you'll, you'll hear this argument about, you know, it's unfair to bring children into this world. It's just so evil. It's just there, there's so much bad going on. And yet we see here in Genesis 9, the intention of everyone is evil from their youth. And yet God's commission remains the same, be fruitful and multiply, spread his glory abroad. I think sometimes we even think of our own sinfulness as parents and think, well, I'm just, I won't, you know, I won't be a good parent, I'm not perfect, I have this fault, I have this fault. Still God's encouragement is, no, it's a blessing to be fruitful and to multiply. 
that even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of sinfulness, I hope it's an encouragement to you parents as well. Uh, we talk about bringing kids up in, in this age, and it always feels like, you know, whatever generation you're in, it's the hardest generation to bring kids up. Like, it's just more complicated than it was when, you know, I was a little kid, bringing up kids now, what they're exposed to so early, and the confusion, and, and everything that's kind of seems to be bombarding our children. And th- there can be, and it is true, it, there is difficulty in it. It takes thoughtfulness and carefulness and how we speak to our children, what we expose them to, and how we talk to them about what they're exposed to. And it takes care. But the commission is that it's still a blessing. (laughs) Even though it's difficult, it's worth it. Even though it takes care and concern, God's mission is to fill the earth with his glory through these little worshipers going forth, through his covenant people. And it is a blessing to be part of that, even in the challenges that exist with it. Just a second consideration, too, is that the image of God is not lost or destroyed because of the fall. I think sometimes we think about Adam being created, and and obviously there's a difference. Adam in a a state of innocence, as we talked about early on, with moral uprightness, positive holiness before God in a time of testing. And then we see the fall, and we see sometimes we'll talk about the image of God being lost, and that's really not the proper way to talk about it. Yes, it's marred, and and yes, it's it's maybe seen, and the, the fellowship is different. But man is still made, still formed, still created in the image of God. We still reflect our Creator. We still have a soul, that breath of life that we saw in Genesis 2, that is breathed into humans, an immortal soul. A soul that is made for eternity, that will live on. Volition, emotion, the, the call to be creators and cultivators, continuing God's work. We are still made in God's image. We still have that. And so as we look around, even in the midst of the brokenness and fallenness, the mission is the same. The glory of God, that we would grow more and more like our God. The mission to spread about the glory of God through his image. And so we think of that. So now we come, and yet we see just that discontinuity, don't we? The now the creation story, there's, there's just a, a darkness about it as well. It's not the Eden experience anymore. Right off the bat, it goes from this time of testing and this Eden experience to now, even as man is, is set forward with this task of being fruitful and multiplying, Already it's known, we need a rescuer. There's a problem that exists right now and provision needs to be made if we are to have any hope. Maybe he's promised there won't be a catastrophic flood again or, or global judgment in that sense. But man is still evil. And God is still holy. And we still need something to bridge that gap. So as God speaks now to Noah and to his sons, he gives three provisions for this new creation, but in this era of fallenness and sin. The first provision is a provision to protect man from animals. A provision to protect man from animals. 
if you remember, from the very beginning, man and animal share this relationship, but it's one of harmony. Man has dominion over animals, even from the beginning, but, but there's a sense of harmony, and you have Adam and Eve as they name the, the animals, and, and God sets them forth in this garden, and there seems to be this relationship of harmony and of peace. And yet, because of the fall, that relationship has been devastated. And so you see how God speaks of it. The first provision that is given here is in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands, they are delivered. There will now be dominion, but it will be one of, of dread and one of fear and one of force. Now this isn't a call to like you know abuse and mistreat animals, but it is a totally different change in the relationship that now God gives you provision that you are to rule over them and you are to protect yourself from them and they will live and you will be protected from them as they fear you and have dread of you and no longer will they have a harmonious relationship with you this past week Calvin went to bed he woke up in the morning and he just covered with bites when he woke up in the morning we were trying to figure out what it was and we have this tree that's basically just a weed that's grown up in our yard. It's an elderberry tree, and there's these little red mites that, that grow on these elderberries. Anyways, he was without a shirt in there swinging away and just covered. It, it, there's not a harmonious relationship there between the creatures and between humans. You see, I mean, how many shark attacks have you seen in the last several weeks? feels like in the news all the time. And so there is, there is one of adversity And he says, with terror and with fear, you will rule over the animals. You will have dominion over them. By force, you will rule over them. And so it's a new provision in a creation marked by the fall. Secondly, with the animals as well, is that they will serve you for food. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now, there's some debate. It's probable that between the the fall at the Garden of Eden and the time of Noah that meat was being eaten. But now the provision is made specifically that in the Eden story, they are given every fruit, every plant, with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is yours for food. And now it changes every living creature. That in order for your protection, in order for your provision in a fallen age, it's now for you to eat them, to have this new relationship with the animals. It's interesting here, and it'll serve us to recognize that what this covenant made here with Noah is is pre-Mosaic. It's not the Mosaic community, and so such, it's not in sort of an established theocratic community. It's a covenant that belongs to creation. And so every living creature, once you get to uh, Moses, you'll, you'll see that division of the clean and the unclean. Now, we know this exists at some level right now because Noah took clean and unclean animals on the ark and brought them off, but it seems to be kind of reserved for sacrifice as he sacrifices the clean animals. But here, without distinction, he tells them every living creature will be yours for eating. So just as we think of the context of it, still sort of a creation covenant more than a mosaic theocratic covenant later on. And so he changes, he makes this provision of the relationship with man and animals. Secondly, 
a provision to protect man from man. Provision to protect man from man. You see it in verse 5. And for your life, blood, I require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here you see God move from, from reserving total right, if it were, of divine judgment over life, of, of the divine hold over life. And in one small slice, he gives this provision to man. If you remember back in Genesis 4, when Cain and Abel, and Cain murders Abel, and then God spares Cain, but he sets him apart. He says, no one to take his life, or even more judgment will come upon man. And God solely reserved that. But now in this, in this recreation, in a sense, and setting forth man and, and having this mission of spreading his glory abroad, he has to give us provision in fallen age. So he gives us provision to protect us against animals. And here's a provision to protect against man as, as violence starts to come in the earth, as murderers come. And there would be a sense in which they would stop the mission that God has set forward for man. He introduces capital punishment. Now, a few observations here, because I don't know if for some of you have been enough conversations that capital punishment can really trigger you one way or the other as you think about it. So immediately before you jump into the exact context of today, just a few thoughts um, that, that we see in here. First is that capital punishment, this commission is grounded in the fact that man is made in God's image. So therefore, to snuff out the life of a man is to snuff out the glory of God, to snuff out the image of God. And if we're set to be fruitful and multiply and in this new creation fill the earth with the glory of God, to murder someone strikes at the heart of fulfilling that mission. So it, it is given within the image of God. This command is set forth within that. Secondly, it's established for the promotion of life. It's established for the promotion of life. The provision is for his creation to survive and to move forward in this fallen age. And so it is established for the protection of life that the one who takes life, who kills someone, that he would then forfeit his life. So it's not, I realize there's more nuance to it today, but to say you're pro-life against capital punishment, back in as it was established, it is a pro-life. It is because of dignity, the created image. It is for the protection of life. Thirdly, we see that it belongs to creation, not simply to a theocratic government. This is a mandate from nature, from creation that God would give, not under the Mosaic community or established theocratic government. And so we see it is, is, it is before that. So as we think through capital punishment, as we think through it today, recognize it was established before that theocratic community. Second, or fourthly, or wherever I am on it, it's the beginning of civil government. When he says here, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. 
God is giving over to man a sense of civil authority and governing. We need that, even though we might not think so. We need that in a fallen age. This provision for God's creation to exist and to thrive, he gives civil government. He, he puts man in that position of ruling over man, of governing. It's interesting, we just were in Romans uh, 13 a couple weeks ago in our reciting, and we went through that obeying those who are in rule over you. And it, in today's climate of politics and policies, it seems it's hard to even quote that necessarily. So there's the idea of, you know, pay taxes to whom taxes are due, you pay what's due there. And then it says, but God has, has given them the right to bear the sword. They, they are put over you, and they are, do it, they are put over you in order to restrain wickedness. It's like the government to restrain wickedness, to, to promote our welfare, promote goods. And so we look at it and think, okay, it's, it's hard sometimes to contextualize how the, the, the government is, is working as God's ambassador in that way. And yet we know it is. God says it is. Not perfectly, obviously, far, far from perfectly. But God has given that provision for man in this fallen age. He has given the provision of civil government and established in its very core here with man judging, ruling over man. So because of that, we see that this mandate would be reserved to the state. It's in a personal vendetta mandate. If someone kills someone, then you take it on yourself to go take care of them. It's reserved for the state. Now, I think, you know, as we think about it, this is where it becomes a difficult conversation because we know in today's government that the the judicial system is filled with all kinds of corruption, with greed, with self-promotion, with uh, racism, with whatever it might be that, that affects how people move along this process. And so I'll let you think it out and work it out as far as how capital punishment should work today in the United States or abroad. But you see what it was established, how it was established and set forward um, by our God. Then we see as we do come to the Mosaic Covenant, it, it is given then more shape and more form in how it is to be carried out how man protects man's life by having this rule, this capital punishment. Once you get to Numbers 35, it speaks about that it is reserved only for premeditated or first-degree murder, if you will. Numbers 35 talks about that. Numbers 35 and Leviticus 20 also talk about that what might apply as in one case doesn't apply in the other case. If someone is put to death over here, then maybe it is not necessary that they're put to death over here. Again, Leviticus 20, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, those are going to be your main passages. It talks about the accused having due process, execution being proven guilty, about the intoleration towards false witness, and so on. And so it's given more shape and and put forward. But we see at its very core, this is what it is. It's a provision to protect man, to accomplish God's mission and spreading his glory through the earth this protection of civil government is given to man to protect man in carrying forth this mission. I think ultimately it points us to this, is that 
justice demands, divine justice demands that a life be given to pay the price of sin. It tells us, in, in, even in Leviticus, it talks about that even if a man it loses his life because of murder, it still does not pay the ransom, it says there. In other words, like it's just punishment, but it doesn't actually pay the ransom. It points us forward to a death that will cover sin that is more than just punishment, but it actually pays the ransom, frees us from the guilt of sin. And I think even in this establishment, the provision for man is pointing us towards a death, an ultimate death that will cover the cost, that will, will pay the ransom, will be the judgment for our sin that we know in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the final provision is a provision to protect us from God. A provision to protect man from God. I know it sounds weird, but as we think about it, that we serve a holy God. We live life before a holy God who can't withstand sin. (laughs) We've talked about before that riddle of the Old Testament. Not one sin will go unpunished. How do we exist? There needs to be some sort of provision for us to exist before that kind of God. And so God gives us a provision here. Look right in the very center of this little pericope. In verse 4, as it gives a permission to eat animals, it says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. He makes a distinction here of, of, okay, you can eat the animal, but you can't eat its life or its blood as its lifeblood courses through it. It's going to be the first of many prohibitions of eating blood. God begins to mark out blood as the symbol of life. And so the shedding of blood is the giving of life. And he makes blood a, a unique and sort of sets it apart even from the beginning here. And marks it with life. Listen to Leviticus 17. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the ones of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Later in Deuteronomy 12, Only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. I think what God is doing here is is even as he gives some of that divine prerogative in ruling, in taking a life of an animal to eat it, or to, to rule with capital punishment and to have judgment over the life of a murderer. Even in that, he's saying, the life still belongs to me. I'm still sovereign over life. I give you provisions, but I am sovereign over life. And he connects it with the blood. You are not sovereign. You cannot consume this. You cannot rule over this. This blood belongs to me. This life, I'm sovereign over it. I gave it. I rule it. 
And so I'll make some provision for you, but still under my sovereignty and under my care. I think ultimately he does this so that it leads us towards, once we come to the, the Mosaic Law and we start to see sacrifices more and more introduced and that, that animal is placed on the altar, that we don't start reading it and building it into a theology that I have to pick this animal that belongs to me, this life that I own, and then I place it on the altar and I give it to the Lord and this is, this is my gift to God. This is, is mine to try to appease and merit God's grace. He's saying, no, that lifeblood, that belongs to me. I gave it. I'm sovereign over it. So even as, that alt, even as that animal is on the altar and its blood is shed as a sacrifice to God, God is giving that. God provided that life. That is God's life. That is God's blood that is altered. He is making provision for your atonement. That sacrifice is provided and given by God for your atonement. It's not the best gift that you have to appease God. Do you see the difference there? And he's saying, the blood is mine because it is life. It's a symbol of life. And even though you can eat that flesh, and even though you can, you can have justice over man in this way, I'm telling you, the life still belongs to me. Don't eat of its blood. Don't eat it while it's living. Because that blood is mine and I am giving it to you to be offered as an atonement, as a way of appeasing my wrath. God is making provision for man. There's nothing, just as, as Abraham in Genesis 22, I think it is, as Abraham comes and he's getting ready to offer Isaac and Jesus provides that ram in the thicket. He provides a sacrifice. He provides the offering. Every time a sacrifice is brought before God, it is God's provision for you. It's not your gift to God. It is God's provision to cover your sin. And we know where that takes us, right? To God's greatest gift, God's ultimate provision, the once for all sacrifice, Jesus Christ, where his side is open and his blood is shed. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Jesus Christ gives the gift. He he provides the sacrifice for your atonement, to appease his wrath against you. And it's established here, even in the earliest notes of the Noahic covenant, the lifeblood belongs to God. It's set apart, it's sacred, this life, and it will cost life to cover your sin, and that life is going to be provided by God. I think it speaks even to our own life as we think about being a living sacrifice. Genesis 12, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto our God. That again, it's not meritorious. It's not working something out. It's life that belongs to God already. He gave it to you. He is sovereign over it. He has total claim on it. So your life is poured out as a sacrifice for God not for a pat on the back, but out of gratitude because he owns it anyways. He has given it to you. You might offer it back to him. And then he gives you the grace and the strength to do so. So as we come to Genesis 8 and Genesis 9, God makes this beautiful provision, this beautiful covenant and promise man. I'm not going to wipe out the earth anymore. Not because... Sin's gone because of this flood, but because I am gracious. And now 
man is going to have to learn now how to, to thrive in this creation that's marked by this fallenness. A provision for our protection against animals. A provision to protect us against man and how we relate to one another. But ultimately a provision to protect us from the wrath of God that God himself will give and apply to our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth.